Marvel's Voices. I am your host, Angelique Roche. Today, I am talking to one of my absolute favorite people, author Nick Stone. Now, Nick writes young adult fiction, including her best-selling novels, Dear Martin, Fast Pitch, and Clean Getaway. But as some of you might know, she also wrote an incredibly fun Shuri series for Marvel. Nick's first Shuri book came out in 2020, then her second book, Shuri the Vanished, came out last year, and the latest, Shuri Symbiosis, hit shelves last month. We'll talk about those books today, but that's not the only Marvel project Nick has been working on. It's not even the only project based in Wakanda. Nick is also the host of our newest podcast, The History of Marvel Comics Black Panther, a podcast about T'Challa, Wakanda, and their history. The first two episodes are out now, so make sure you listen, but not right now. First, listen to my conversation with Nick. Welcome back to Marvel's Voices. Well, thank you, dear. Thank you. I'm really excited because... The last time you were on Voices, you had one Shuri book out, another Shuri book on the way, and now you've contributed Marvel's Voices Legacy number one. You've got a third installment of the Shuri series, which is coming out, which let me tell you, when you first told me about this book, I got so excited. Yes. It's my favorite of the three, like by far. So you're a veteran now. How does it feel? Like you're a Marvel veteran. Girl, I'm a whole toddler. Let's not get ahead of ourselves, okay? <laughs> the first Shuri book came out in 2020. We're not even two years old yet. Veteran is a, a bit of a stretch, but I am having a good time. And I think that that is very important during circumstances like the ones we're in. It's like December 332nd, 2020, if you ask me. Like 2020 just never ended. And in a time like this one, it is really important to have spaces where you are enjoying yourself. And yeah, I've gotten to do a lot of, and am getting to do a lot of really cool stuff that I absolutely would have never expected. So I gotta ask, what's been the best part of this like creative process and storytelling for Shuri? Ooh, the self-validation piece, I think has been the best part as a... Now, woman, who was a very nerdy black girl, like to this day, I love physics and loved the idea of there being something that works the same way every time you do it. Like I think about like if you mix peroxide and baking soda, you're literally going to get the same reaction every single time. So the idea of there being something steady and stable, and of course, science is always evolving, but I liked the idea of there being something where the laws are more or less set, right? So this is why I really was super into physics when I was younger. But of course, I got like clowned relentlessly for sitting in the corner and reading Michael Crichton's Sphere when I was in seventh grade. Like my peers weren't reading these books. So getting to write a girl who is black who loves science and inventing and technology and big, ridiculous chemical words like that. It has made me feel like who I am and who I was really did matter. 
I love that. And it's a perfect segue to my next question, because we previously talked about the fact that you were a voracious reader as a child. But I'd love to talk more about how did that evolve for you, this love of reading evolve when you started telling stories and how that love of reading impacts the stories you want to tell? I think about this the same way I think about athletics. I have never met a good basketball player who doesn't watch basketball or a good football player who is not spending time watching tape and studying other people's moves and figuring out how to maneuver on the field. There's something very powerful about consuming the thing that you want to put back out into the world. And it was the ingestion, if you will, of story and how story functions. Like story has a pretty set structure, like stories that are believable. There are elements of a story that are in every story. And if any element is lacking, it doesn't feel right. It feels like it's not cohesive. So in reading, you get a handle on how story functions, how time is important, how setting matters, how character development is pretty crucial, how what's going on in the story affects the character. And it's this big kind of morass of magic to me. It's this thing like you read, and as you read, your own imagination gets to go places that it wouldn't go otherwise. And once you've gone to these other places, it's not like your imagination shrinks back down. So then you have this expanded imagination that you can pull from to create based on the inspiration you've taken from these other places you've visited in your mind. I love that because... That's the perspective you bring to the writing, right? That's the passion you bring to the writing. It jumps off the pages because you are excited about the thing that you are writing. It's not just, oh, I want to write. Like It's like, I want to write something at the end of the day that I would want to read. One of the things that is also very clear because, spoiler alert, Shuri is black. So, I mean, how do you feel your perspective as a woman of color and a mother contributes to how you tell stories? It's the source, of my angle. Like my experiences are the source of everything that comes out of my brain, everything that comes out of my imagination. And this is something that I love telling young people. I know for a fact that the moment my mother knew that I was inside her body, her whole world flipped upside down. And because her world flipped upside down, the world of the people who were interacting with her, their worlds flipped upside down. Like we have been impacting other people literally since conception. And it's recognizing that because of that, we have just inherent value. The fact that I exist here at this time means that there is something that I can put out into the world that literally no one else can. That's where the experiences come in. That's where the perspective comes in. That specific combination of experiences and perspective and paradigms and like all of these different pieces of what make up a person's lived experience, if you will. Those are the things that make my stories mine. And those are the things that make me valuable in the sense that because of that very specific combination that belongs to me, I'm able to put things out there that no one can put out there the way that I can. And that's literally true for every single person on earth. There is no person alive right now who is not valuable simply because they exist. And I want more people to recognize that because I do think that right now there's this pandemic of people feeling like they're not important. 
and like they don't matter. And it's easy to get lost in that feeling when there's so much uncertainty swirling around us. But in this pandemic and in all of this uncertainty, the thing that grounds me is my storytelling. I'm able to escape into these worlds that I create and that I have control over. And those are the things that keep me rooted in this very wild world that we're inhabiting right now. Well, and it's really cool, the existence of storytelling in this way, right? And storytelling takes a lot of forms. You know, we've talked a lot about your prose, your love of reading and writing prose. You also are, as you mentioned, a nerd and you do like Z comics. Mm -hmm. What is it about comics that spoke to you as a medium? And do you remember feeling like you were represented in the comics that you first picked up? So funny but true, the first comics I ever read were Garfield. Did I feel represented by a very lazy and kind of grumpy cat? A little bit. A yeah, little bit. I was like, I can relate to Garfield. Yeah, it hit. It really did. And honestly, that was one of the places that I realized that literally every story has to do with humanity. Like even stories about cats. All of those stories are rooted in like anthropomorphism, which is ascribing human characteristics to things that are not human because stories are about humanity. And so really what it was about the comic medium that I loved was the combination of words and pictures. The same thing is true with superhero comics because you have this combined thing like first of all you're working two different parts of your brain which i think is like the coolest thing ever but also the storytelling is so dynamic because it's not just these words these symbols i'm reading on this page that then form a picture in my mind these symbols are coming with a picture and the words give meaning to the picture as the picture is giving meaning to the words as we have mentioned i am a huge nerd and there was something about that kind of interchange, that exchange, that I just really, really loved. It kind of talks a little bit about your love and your excitement for even coming into the Marvel family, right? Talk to us a little bit about how you moved from writing your own original characters to writing for Marvel and like, what was different for you? Because now you're playing somebody else's sandbox. Like, what is that like? See, what's cool about this is I don't feel like it's somebody else's sandbox. Like the minute you enter the sandbox and you're contributing to the castle that's built there, it's also your sandbox. And that's my favorite thing about working in this space, the collaborative nature of it. Everything Marvel started as one thing and has now expanded beyond what the original creator imagined that it would be. And that's because so many different people have gotten to contribute to it, right? So my Marvel story is definitely kind of like a parable or a lesson in just doing your job and doing it well and good things coming as a result of that. I have people all the time who will ask me like, oh my gosh, like what do I need to do to be able to write for Marvel? And I'm like, write your own stuff and write it well. And if you're supposed to write for Marvel, Marvel will come to you. So I was just writing the books that I write. And I literally one day in an airport in Amarillo, Texas, got an email where I basically got asked if I wanted to write a book about Shuri. We're starting this new thing and we're interested in seeing if Nick Stone wants to 
write a story about Shuri. We know she's a fan and we just feel like she's the perfect person to do it. And I was like, what? So in just existing as my authentic self on the internet and doing my job in a way where my focus was on creating things for a specific audience and doing that excellently, so many doors have opened. Not because I pushed them open, not because I broke the door down, but because I was doing what I'm supposed to be doing or doing what I feel like I'm supposed to be doing. It's actually kind of wild because a lot of this has taught me or really has reinforced how little control we actually have over anything. Like I have control over the things that are put into my hands, but I don't have control over them getting into my hands necessarily. And just remembering that it's really humbling, but it's also kind of liberating. So I'm just, I'm having a blast here and I will rock it until the wheels fall off. So it's magical and sometimes I'm not sure that it's real and I feel like I'm scamming everybody. (laughs) You're scamming no one. Ha ha. Look, you're on your third book, right? And I remember talking to you about the first book and you just knew. You knew where you wanted the character to go. You knew what adventures you wanted the character to be on. There was this love you had for Shuri. And so Symbiosis is our third of the Shuri books. For those who aren't caught up yet, tell us about the first two books. So in my work that is mine, I tend to write about things that bother me. The first book, they kind of gave me a one-liner The harp-shaped herb is dying, and Shuri has to figure out how to save it. Boom. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I had to spin a tale out of that. But from that, and getting to know her as I was writing her, getting to know Wakanda a little bit better, I was able to give her a best friend. Getting to do all of that, the next book just kind of came to me. Like, I knew what I wanted to address in the second book. So the first book is about... The heart-shaped herb, which is the plant that the person who is going to take on the Black Panther mantle has to ingest in order to get kind of the Black Panther powers. It's this like vibranium-enhanced plant. So it's dying, though. And of course, if it dies, there won't be any more Black Panthers. And that would be a problem. So Shuri goes on this journey trying to figure out, number one, why the herb is dying, and number two, what she can do to not only stop it, but reverse the damage. So that's the first book, and we see her like leave Wakanda. And then in the second book, girls have gone missing. These very, very smart girls, typically from countries that are quote unquote impoverished and it seems like nobody notices except for their friends and so Shuri in this book is trying to figure out not only where they went but why they went there and if they're in danger of some sort and obviously they're in danger because there would be no plot if they weren't in danger and so she's trying to figure out how to save them so in the first book she's trying to save the herb to save Wakanda in book two that broadens and she's trying to save other people. She's trying to save these girls. And then you haven't even asked me about symbiosis, but I'm going to say it anyway. So in symbiosis, she's trying to save Wakanda. And man, I had so much fun writing symbiosis. And anybody who sees the cover, it's very clear who 
one of the cameo characters is, though it's not actually that particular named character. It's just a cousin, if you will. And y'all are like, what? So just Google the cover and you'll get what I'm saying. I had so much fun writing a book where Shuri does not leave Wakanda. And she doesn't leave Wakanda because I really wanted to take the opportunity to build out the Wakanda that exists in my mind. Because like, for instance, the Jabari lands, they've never been pictured anywhere. I went through all of the comics. There's like one picture where you see a few buildings in the background, but you never actually see what the Jabari lands look like. You don't see it in the film. The film, all you really see is this kind of like ice palace where M'Baku lives. And so I had the opportunity to kind of build out what the Jabari lands look like. And I got to do that with other parts of Wakanda as well. So she's trying to save this beautiful place that she calls home from something very interesting with pointy teeth who has cohorts with pointy teeth that may or may not want to come and take over. I have all confidence of putting you on my charades team in your ability to avoid keywords that you shouldn't say out loud, but are clearly evident based on the words you're using. One of the things we've kind of hinted on, everyone needs a best friend because who's going to wonder where you are when you're missing? And I love that you explored that in the second book, right? Like yeah. who's going to be the person that goes, where is X, right? And what it pinpoints out too is like, Shuri didn't have a lot of backstory, right? We get a lot of future out of Shuri. But in these books, we get her backstory, right? We get a ton of backstory. What was it like being the architect of that? Because I can only compare it to like Greg Pak doing Sakaar, creating Planet Hulk, right? Like to me, it's that level of story in that you've built something that just did not exist before. Man, it has been the coolest thing I've ever done. The only thing that I feel more proud of is having literally grown human beings inside my body and like spit them out. That's like my highest accomplishment is making actual people. But this is pretty up there. Getting to to add to the canon, basically. Because yeah, Shuri's introduced, she's like 19-ish. Like she's an older teenager when she's introduced in the comics. She's probably 16 or 17 when she's introduced in the film. So getting to write her as a 13-year-old it was just so much fun and getting to talk about how she was when she was six and getting to write this for children, for kids who are going to look at her and want to do the things that she does and want to be inventors. And I'm absolutely a person who listens to my own audiobooks because I do have two children. So we've been listening to The Vanished, this is the second Shuri book. And both of my boys right now are just obsessed with the idea of being inventors. And a lot of this just happens subconsciously. Like when you're reading, there's so much happening in your brain that you don't even realize is happening. And it's so cool to me that I was able to create something that my boys are hearing and it's inspiring them to want to try out different things. So building this backstory with her as a kid, obviously they're going to be more able to connect with her both in language aimed at younger people and with her at a younger age than they would with her at like 19 or 20. And so it's been fun, but it's also been an honor. I don't take it lightly because I do think that this stuff is really important 
and I see it as a privilege that I get to be someone who contributes to this wider world and the story of this particular character. What elements of the character did you particularly want to explore? Her curiosity and the way that her curiosity inspires action. One thing I love about children is that they are so curious about so many things. Like my five-year-old, I'll say, Milo, please stop throwing that baseball at the window. Well, why? Well, because you could break the window. How? Like there's this innate curiosity when you are young. You want to understand how the world works. And the beauty of Shuri is that when she's curious about how something works, she's the kind of kid that's going to find out. Like, okay, I want to know how this particular piece of equipment functions. So she's going to take it apart and figure out how it functions. And what I hope is that in seeing her curiosity and how her curiosity inspires action, kids will be more comfortable in their own curiosity and they'll be more comfortable in taking action to explore the things that they're curious about. Because look, I will say as an adult, as a parent, I watch parents all the time crush their kids' curiosity and I hate it. And it's part of the reason that I write the kind of stuff that I write because I think it's important to keep that sense of curiosity alive. And it's like, well, don't touch the stove. Why? Because it's hot. Well, why is it hot? Look, just don't touch it because I said you can't touch it. Like you completely lost an opportunity there. You eliminated an opportunity to help your child understand something about the world that they clearly want more information about. So knowing that that is the case with a lot of parents, because, you know, we be tired. You know, there's no judgment here, especially right now. Creating stories where kids see that they are allowed to be curious and they're validated in that curiosity is super important to me. So now I'm curious. Hey, hey. Oh, huh. Was there a particular part of Shuri that you related to as you were writing the book? Yeah, like most of her honestly. But again, the curiosity piece, like I was definitely that kid. And I am still very much that adult who is just fascinated by new information. So there's this guy I went to high school with, and he's a computer engineer. And he was explaining to me how the internet actually works. And when I tell you I was riveted, part of his job is both creating and laying these under ocean cables that literally carry the internet from country to country. It's It's fascinating. It is mind blowing. And it's interesting. And I think for me, I've always been a person who just, I don't like taking things for granted. There's this like healthy skepticism that I think people should really try to hold on to. Like you don't just take what other people are saying. I think it's important to investigate. I think it's important to think critically and to ask questions and to fact check. Like those are things that Shuri possesses. Like they're definitely also a part of me. So it's been fun taking my own curiosity and getting to infuse it into this character, which then validates my own curiosity. I remember when I was writing The Vanished, the number of people that I had to talk to to compile the knowledge of this one character was 
ridiculous. Like I had to talk to a forensics specialist. I had to talk to somebody who works in cybersecurity. I had to learn what a hackback is. Like there are all of these, I had to learn about electromagnetism and how it functions. I had to learn about the science of a sonic boom. Like there are all of these things that I got to learn as a result of writing this character. And yeah, it's been fun validating myself, honestly. So, so besides Shuri and Symbiosis, which I know folks are utterly excited to read after that incredible description you just gave, you've been working on some other stuff in and around Wakanda. (laughs) Tell us about this Black Panther project. I'm still so astonished about it that like even talking about it is like, what? But I am actually the host for a podcast. It's called The History of Marvel Comics Black Panther, and it is a journey through Black Panther's comic book history. And we learn where he came from. We learn how he got to where he is. We learn about his time with the Avengers. We learn about how he went from America back to Wakanda, back to America, into outer space, into the galactic empire of Wakanda. Like there's so much deliciousness in Black Panther's history. And I got to talk to a myriad of creators, and I'm talking like writers, artists, editors, like all of these different people contributed to this podcast. And I'm really excited for people to hear more about how T'Challa became T'Challa. The figure that we see today has been 60 years in the making, and that's a really cool thing to me. I know you got to talk to Priest, Hudlin, McGregor, Evan Narciss is going to be on there, Ta-Nehisi. I mean, look, you got to talk to the people who really put their love. Like, Don McGregor is a legend, right? Because he really was one of the first creators to say, why would I put more white White people people in in, There there should not be any white people here. We're in Africa in an isolated country (laughs) that nobody knows about. Like, I remember, I remember when I first heard about the film, right? Like we all hear about the film that's going to happen and like the news that it was going to be like a majority black cast sent this ripple through the world. But knowing that Don, he was doing this like 40 to 50 years ago. Like I was new on the screen, sort of like in this particular universe, it was new to the screen, but Wakanda being a black place didn't, actually originate with black people. And that's something that I really appreciate, especially as a person who graduated from an HBCU. So my HBCU was founded by two white women. I went to Spelman and the two white ladies who founded Spelman founded Spelman because they cared about black people. And it's a similar thing with Don McGregor. And it has been such a delight interacting with these people who care so much about good representation and about black people being portrayed as you think human beings with like feelings and things that they are trying to accomplish and I have to save the day here like I get to be the hero but I have to be the hero it was just amazing I talked to different artists I got to talk to editors I talked to a few fans and like when I say fans I'm not just talking like oh I read the comics these are fans who like study the comics who teach comic book history it was the nerdiest job I've ever done and therefore probably the most enjoyable I'm so excited about this now the history of Black Panther is pretty massive 
how do you even start tackling this? And what can folks expect to hear from some of these stories? So the interesting thing about the history of Black Panther is that, yes, he was introduced a long time ago, like 1966, but there actually haven't been that many runs where he is kind of the star character. He was interacting with the Fantastic Four and he became a part of the Avengers, but he didn't get his own story until Don McGregor wrote it. And Don McGregor wrote the first solo run. It's like McGregor, Priest, Hudlin, Coates, and now John Ridley is, it's five. There are five big deal, notable Black Panther runs. So while it's a long history, there's still so much building that's still happening because it's not like Spider-Man where like every year you're getting a new story from a different perspective. T'Challa, it's taken some time for him to get to a point where he's rolling from one creator to the next. I'm pretty sure this is the first time that we've ended one Black Panther story, the one written by ta Coates, and we're going straight into the next one by John Ridley. Before that, before Coates, Reginald Hudlin, this was years and years and years ago, right? So recognizing how it's actually taken some time for T'Challa to get to a point in the comic world where he's getting that respect on his name that he's deserved this whole time. That's been the, the funnest part about doing this podcast. And so like we learn the origin, like where he came from and why we learn about some of the early things that he went through. We learn about how he was positioned relative to things going on in history. We learn about why the creators decided to take him in the directions they decided to take him. And over the course of the podcast, we see T'Challa become more and more fleshed out. We see him become more and more human, more and more dynamic. And it's such a fun journey. I've used the word fun so much. And the fact that there's so much joy in this is what makes it powerful. I'm excited for listeners to hear this. All right. So I know you got a lot of work to do. I am so excited about symbiosis. I am excited about all the books you can't tell us about. I'm excited about all the secret projects I know you got. So thank you so much for coming on Marvel's Voices again. Hopefully you'll be back again soon. Thank you again, Nick, for joining me. Folks, Shuri Symbiosis is out now wherever you get your books. And the first two episodes of the History of Marvel Comics, Black Panther, are also out now on SiriusXM and Marvel Podcast Unlimited on Apple Podcasts. And the first episode is out everywhere. Next week on the show, we'll be talking about another podcast, our newest fiction series, Marvel's Wastelanders Black Widow, also out now. I'm chatting with Chaston Harmon, who plays a new character in the Marvel Universe, Lisa Cartwright. We'll talk about her career, the Wastelanders universe, and the unique challenge of acting in an audio-only realm. We'll try not to spoil anything, but you should go listen to Marvel's Wastelanders Black Widow in the meantime anyway. It's a lot of fun. Marvel's Voices is produced by Isabel Robertson and me, Angelique Rocher. 
Our creative producer is Harry Goh. Our senior manager of audio production and development is Brad Barton. Our production manager is Larissa Rosen. And our executive producer is Jill Duboff. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kamal Wainaina. <laughs>